Uh, glad to see you all here. I know it's the beginning of spring break, so a lot of our folks have headed home to be with their families or to head to the beach. Or um, I think Renato is going to Hawaii with his mom, so that's probably so, it's a hard, yeah. That's he, he wins that one. So um, so, um, but I know it's a great time of rest for a lot of people, and um, those of us who have full time jobs miss having spring break off. So. Um, but we're good. To, uh, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Um, I hope you had a chance to watch the videos that Chet made this past week catching us up on Luke chapter 13. If you didn't, uh, they're on the Facebook page. You can go back and see those. And um, probably this afternoon I'll get those out on the podcast feed so you can listen to them if you, if you miss those online. Um, but we're picking up in Luke chapter 14. And we have some things here that have happened several times before, and so some of this may sound a little bit familiar, but each time uh, there's something new that we can gain from it. So let's look at Luke chapter 14. I'll start reading in verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent, and he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for what we're going to look at here this morning, the compassion that you have for people, Lord, the desire to have your kingdom filled with those that are far away from you. Lord, help us to hear from your word. Help us to hear the words that you spoke. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Sabbath meals were a big occasion, you know, here in the South, Sunday dinner has is, is traditionally been a thing. Um, Sabbath meals were probably a much bigger deal than that. There, there was even guidance among the Jews that the food that they served on the Sabbath should be different than what they served throughout the week. And, and if they couldn't really change the food, that maybe they should do it at a different time, just to show that this is a special occasion, this is a, a special thing that they do. And so it was not unusual that, uh, that you would invite a lot of guests over. And this was the case with Jesus, that these Pharisees, uh, who were really enemies of Jesus at the time, had invited him to this big Sabbath meal. And it says that there's a man here that suffers from dropsy. And basically what this was, is it was an edema. It was where that uh, fluid would build up in this person's body, and they would be visibly disfigured because of it. Uh, they'd be swelling. And so this was not a, a condition that would be hidden away. It would be something that would be very visibly apparent. And it's a question of, did, they, did the Pharisees have this man in front of Jesus as a setup, or did he just happen to be there? It seems unusual that he would just happen to be there at this invitation-only dinner, but uh, we, we don't see that. We don't see the motivation behind it. But we see that he, Jesus is presented with this man who has a, an obvious physical condition. 
And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and the lawyers. You know, And lawyers, as we've talked about before, are not the traditional take-you-to-court type of lawyers. They're the ones who look at Scripture and interpret it and expound upon it. So he looks at them and gives them a chance to make a ruling. And he says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, there are five instances in the, in the book of Luke where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And this is the last one that's recorded. And every time, there's been some opposition to him from the Pharisees. Even in the chapter before, in, verse, uh, in chapter 13, verse 17, you know, he had just healed another person on the Sabbath. And in verse 17 of chapter 13, it says, As he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. So we see that the Pharisees and the, the scribes, the lawyers, every time that Jesus would do this and they would try to rebut him, he would embarrass them. He would humiliate them. You know, it's one of those things that you can't do. You can't argue with Jesus because he's never wrong. Um, you know, so I heard somebody say, you know, that's one thing Jesus never had to deal with was being wrong and having to make up for it. But you can't argue with Jesus because he's always right. So they kept silent because they were really stuck in a bind here. They wanted to appear righteous, you know, to follow the letter of the law, this legalism. But at the same time, they didn't want to appear heartless. They wouldn't want to be, uh, they didn't want to lack compassion, which they did. They obviously did. And we see this time and time over with these religious leaders. So here we see the hypocrisy of wanting to appear righteous, but not having any real compassion for someone. So they kept silence. Now there's a difference between true legalism, believing that it takes works to save you, and hypocrisy, to where you're more worried about the appearance, and you, feel you, you have a license to sin, you do whatever you want to, as long as you can keep up the front that people will think that you're righteous. And that's what they're trying to do. They obviously didn't believe Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowd. They were afraid of the public perception. They wanted people to always praise them and think well of them, but they couldn't go along with Jesus because he was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their uh, authority. And Jesus gives this example after he's healed this man. He says, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day. And, and so there's, there were, he was referring to these accepted exceptions in the law to where, yes, the law did say that you're supposed to do no work on the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. But there were these exceptions to where if there was an imminent threat to life or, or something like that, that there were the exceptions. They were work, what were called works of necessity. And you have to think that surely healing would be considered a work of necessity. And we even see this even the time before um, when he heals someone. He says uh, back in chapter 13, uh, in verse 16, it says, And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she have not been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So he's made this case. So this, in, verse, in chapter 14, when he says, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's fought them on this issue multiple times, and he's like, all right, make a ruling. Tell me. And they were still afraid to do it. They didn't believe in him, but they wanted to make sure that they were okay as far as the public perception goes. Because shouldn't we have more compassion 
on this man than we have on an animal. Because he was saying, you're going to do it for your animals. Wouldn't you do it for a, a person? Because this person was a child of God and deserved Jesus' compassion and his touch. True compassion far outweighs superficial righteousness. Far outweighs the superficial. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 7. So he's at this, he's at this dinner, and he just happens to tell some parables that are in a similar type setting. So verse 7, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you will come and say to you, Give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So it was this custom, and we see some of this even today, that when you have this type of formal dinner, that there would be seats would be lined up, and the host would have the seat of prominence, or whoever was being honored would have the seat of prominence. And the closer you were to that person, the more important you were considered. And we see this at formal events, you know, when we have a big dinner and there might be a table up front and the host and the guest of honor will be up there and then other important people would be there. Um, And, you know, nowadays we put little name tags to tell people where they're supposed to sit. But apparently that was not the practice then. So people would come in and he sees them in verse 7 saying, you know, trying to jockey for the best seats, the ones closest to the host. Um, and he even rebukes them for this back in chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11, verse 43, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. So even in the synagogues we had this to where there were certain seats that were shown special importance. And if you were to sit there, you were shown to be an important person. The same that we have in, uh, in this dinner setting. And they wanted these seats because they wanted to appear important. And what Jesus gives here is some really good practical, social, and professional advice, but it has a higher meaning. See, we have this common theme throughout the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature of like the Psalms and Proverbs and things like that, that arrogance leads to humiliation. And that Jesus is restating what should be familiar advice to them from Proverbs. In Proverbs 25, we see, Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, Come up here, than for to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So he gives this idea of where in the presence of a king, that somebody's trying to jockey and be close to the king and say, Well, I'm important because I'm close to the king. 
And then somebody said, no, you need to step down. You, you don't need to be that close to the king. It's much better to be far away and for the king or for the prince to call you up and say, oh, they made special recognition of me. I should come up. In the New Testament, we see kind of the, the, the other side of that coin where he says humiliation, uh, humility leads to being lifted up. And we see this in the repeated times that Jesus talks about who will be the least being the greatest. And we see how he says the first shall be last. And even among his disciples when this argument broke out in Luke chapter 9 about who is the greatest and all that and who is going to be next to him, uh, he, he really uses that as an opportunity to put, it in, put them in place that the way of the kingdom of God is in many ways backwards than the kingdom of this world, that those who are least will be the greatest. You know, in, in a lot of churches, uh, and even here to some degree, uh, we have, um, and I grew up Baptist, so we have this term back, back, seat, or back row Baptist, to where everybody comes into the, the place where we're meeting and they want to sit as far away from the front as possible. And, and that's, that's so common because we're like, I want to be way back here, I don't want to be too close. Well, it was very different then, and even in certain situations where we want to be close to the front. Um, and this, you know, there was an event that happened to me uh, years ago that still just sticks out to me. Um, I used to work for the Atlanta Opera, and not as a musician. I was doing accounting and technology stuff. But one of the really cool things about that was that our rehearsal space was in the same building, and they always invited us to come down and sit in rehearsal so that we could know what we were doing. And so, you know, I'm a musician. I love that stuff. So we had uh, our singers had come in, and it was the orchestra wasn't there. It was just the singers and piano player and the conductor and everything. And so I, I sneak in during rehearsal, and I'm sitting over in the corner just kind of watching what's going on. And um, the conductor, who, you know, was a friend and I knew him, he looks over at me and waves me over there and has me sit right next to him as he's directing. And he's turned over to and making comments about the music and everything. And I've just, I mean, I felt honored. Here I am in front of world-class musicians, and this conductor who's well-known all over Atlanta has asked me to come sit right next to him so he can share this with me. That's been over a decade, and that still sticks out to me. It's like, wow, he didn't have to do that. But he noticed me, and he wanted me right there next to him so he could share it with me. And, and that just really sticks out to me of what it means to be called up and to be put in that place of honor next to someone. Because see, the, the principle here is that if you try to gain honor for yourself, it will ultimately end in humiliation. Now there's a difference between humility and humiliation. Humility is what we live out through our attitudes and our actions. It's self-imposed. We put ourselves in a place of humility. Humiliation is what's imposed on us. You know, if I had walked into that rehearsal hall and just, just kind of walked my, swaggered my way up and sat right next to him, there might have been a few looks like, what are you doing? You, you, this is not where you belong. And, you know, somebody might have asked me to step aside because that was not where I belong or should have been. It was so much better to be called up than to be pushed away. And we're supposed to live our life in humility so that we don't have to be humiliated. Throughout the Proverbs, there's this idea that before honor is humility. That before we're going to be given honor by men or by God, we have to come in humility. In the New Testament, we see in Philippians chapter 2, 
It says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And in James we see God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then Jesus in Matthew 23 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We're always to act with humility. Now, but not a false humility, because some people have this false humility thing down, like, well, you know, I'm just the most humble person I know. And, you know, things like that, or, you know, they really are quite proud, but they put on this front of humility. We have to make sure that our humility is genuine, that we realize our right standing uh, in relation to others and in relation to God. Because, man, the, the worst thing I want is to be in the kingdom of God and just feel like I walk right up there and feel like I've got a place of honor and God said, no, 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 you need to, you need a lower seat. There's other people who, who are supposed to be here. Because maybe I'm not as great or as important as I think I am. Because it's God's assessment of us, not our own. Some of us have the tendency to assess ourselves, to think far too highly of ourselves. Now, there are some who have the, the, the other side of that, to where we think far too lowly of ourselves. We don't realize that the value that God has put into us and what, how God values us. So we have to make sure that we have a right understanding of who we are in God's eyes. We have to think of others as more important than ourselves, but we also have to think of ourselves as important enough for God to send His Son for us. We have to make sure we have that right view. And starting in verse 12, he, gives, he kind of expands on this a little bit. So he's talking to the guest here, but then he turns to the host of this dinner party and gives him instructions about who to invite. And the idea here is, he said, of being repaid. You know, when we give, when we're, when we give things or when we host a party, there's always some type of reward. There's always some type of feedback from that. Now, sometimes it's strictly a good feeling, you know, that, hey, I did something nice for somebody else, you know, and we have this feeling of benevolence or altruism that we've done something good for someone else. But that in itself is a payback, just the good feeling. Not anything necessarily wrong with that, but there is a benefit to it. That's one way we get repaid. The other way is kind of what Jesus is referring to here is this one for one. I do something good for you. And then sometime down the road, you're going to do something good for me. I'll give you a birthday gift. And then when it's my birthday, I expect you to give me a gift. That's why I don't give a lot of birthday gifts um, because I always forget. I'm terrible with that. So when you have that one-for-one type of relationship with giving and generosity and hospitality, it's very transactional. It's just a transaction like you go to the store and you've bought something. There's a TV show I watch that gives a great example of this. Um, there's a character named Sheldon Cooper who's very quirky. If you watch the show, you know he's very quirky. He hates gift giving. And it was so perfect in one of the examples. His friend was getting married, and he was one of the groomsmen. And the, the groom gave him this very special comic book that was, and he was like, wow. Um, he says, this comic book in this condition is worth $100. And he's like, yeah, so it's, it's a gift. He says, well, I got you a gravy boat. And it's worth $88. That means I'm in your debt $12. And, and, and he just couldn't handle that, that he would be in someone's debt $12. And the guy's like, I don't care. 
And, he's, and he, like, he pulls out cash and gives him $12 in cash. And he said, no, wait, I bought you a card. Give me $2 back. And so he, you know, he's trying to keep the, the scales balanced because that's why he hates gift giving because he doesn't want to be in anyone's debt. And so that's when you're thinking about gift giving and hospitality in a very transactional way. And that's not the way gift giving should be. So we have that sometimes when we give, we have the feedback of good feeling. Sometimes we have this transactional one-for-one back but sometimes we want to be acknowledged, and sometimes we are acknowledged for our giving. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about this, uh, and he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So when we practice, when we give, when we practice our righteousness in such a way that we're noticed for it, that receives some type of feedback, that's what Jesus is referring to here. Now, in the nonprofit world where I've been for most of my career, this is called donor recognition, and it's how you get people to give more money. You do a little on your brochure or your program, on your website, you say, these people have been very generous to us and we want to thank them for it. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, but if that's the whole reason you're giving, you're kind of missing the point. Um, because see, there's what Jesus is saying back in Luke 14 is that when you invite these people who are less able to pay you back, there's nothing to gain by inviting them because there's nothing socially you can gain, there's nothing financially you can gain. So... If you're not going for the good feelings, if you're not going for this one-for-one transaction, and if you're even not going for the acknowledgement, what you're doing is investing in God or investing with God. Back to Matthew chapter 6, continuing that, it says, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And so we have that in mind when Jesus is given this parable about who to invite to a dinner because true hospitality and true generosity is given to those who can't repay. That's, that's when it's real. Now, it's not that when we do this that we're in some way manipulating God or manipulating the system to where, well, I'm going to give $100 and I know God's going to bless me 10 times over with $1,000. That, that's not what we're talking about here. That's, that's a lie from, yeah. That, that's not what Scripture teaches at all. But it does teach us to store up treasures in heaven because every treasure in this world will fade away either during our lifetime or in the new kingdom. It's not going to last. So that's why we want to store up our treasures in heaven. Because true honor comes from through true humility and hospitality. That's where true honor, honor comes from. And then in verse 15, we have this guy who just maybe is caught up in the moment or is not really sure what he's saying when he says, um, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I guess he feel like he needed to say something here. But the question is, so who will eat bread in the kingdom of God? See, the unspoken assumption is that the people in that crowd would, that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the lawyers, they would be one, the ones who would be eating bread in the kingdom of God because they're, they're the Jewish elite. 
they would be the ones who would be there. And so this just gives Jesus another opportunity to talk about who actually will be in the kingdom of God. So let's keep reading in verse 16 of Luke 14. But he said to him, A man was given a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent a slave to come to those who had been invited. Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner." So these people have already received an initial invitation. They've already received the save the date notice. They know it's coming. So this wasn't a surprise, but what they show here is a very low regard for the host. That they were not ready to attend this party. They may have even put it on their calendar, but it was kind of marked tentative. As if it's there, but I'm probably not going to go. And then when he comes out with the second invitation, you know, to refuse a second invitation was a severe cultural insult. Because at that point, you're not just refusing the event. You're not refusing the dinner, but you're refusing the person. And so this is a big deal. And in verse 18 and 19, we see these excuses that are are pretty poor and flimsy. Um, because let's be honest here, if you've bought land or you've bought animals, dinner time is not the time that you should go out and be looking at them. And guess what? They'll be there in the morning. You know, it, they're, if you've already bought them, you know, it's not, you know, it's one thing if you're thinking about buying them. It's another thing. You've bought them. They're going to be there. They're yours. They're going to be there. So that's a, these are pretty flimsy excuses. And then verse 20, this one actually is a little more plausible because in the law, there were certain exceptions for If a person had gotten married, that a man was excused from military service and some other things during a certain period of time after he got married. So this one's a little more plausible, but the way he responds is more harsh than the ones before him. Because it was like, the first two were like, consider me excused. This other one's like, I can't come. You know, just plain out, I'm not coming. And so even with this, we see the similarity between these excuses and the ones that we saw back in Luke chapter 9. Where it's like, I will follow you, but I need to go bury my father. Or I need to go home and take care of some things. See, same type of excuses to say, yeah, but, you know, not quite ready. Don't want to do it. And what we see in this parable is an illustration of God's kingdom. Where God is the host. See, the Jewish religious leaders and the Jews in general who were God's special people, they repeatedly refused Him. You see, throughout the history of the Old Testament, so many times that God had to just bring the hammer down on them to bring them back. They refused to hear the words of the prophets. 
and they rejected His invitation time and time again. And they knew the Messiah was coming. They knew God's Word, even if they misunderstood parts of it. But they knew the Messiah was coming, and yet they rejected Him when He came. And these leaders were even critical of Jesus with the people who were following Him. And the people that Jesus hung out with, the, the common Jews, just the, the common people, uh, and the tax collectors and sinners, and the Gentiles, God forbid that Jesus want to hang out with people who are not Jews, um, and certainly His disciples the same. So they were critical of Him. And what, what, what can, we can think here is like, well, did God change His plan? Did, did He try plan A and it not work, so He switched over to plan B? I actually had somebody try to explain it to me that way one time. It's like, well, he realized the whole law thing wasn't working, so he decided to send Jesus. And I was like, no, no, that's, that's not how it happened. <laughs> that was God's plan all along, to send his son for us. It was God's plan all along. And it was God's plan all along to reach out further than just the Jews, than just Israel. Because even in the Old Testament, we see that people had become, who were not Jews, had become God-fearers. They, had become, they became Jews by practice, and by faith. And so in here in the New Testament, we see certainly with uh, the ministry of Jesus, but then certainly with Paul, we see that the gospel was never meant to be just for the Jews. It was always for all, for everyone. And but So don't get confused by that, because this illustration is given from the Pharisees' perspective, how they viewed it, not how God views it, because it was always His plan to send out the invitation for everyone. And the scene that we have at the end is that those who think that they have a reservation may find themselves on the outside looking in at the beggar they passed on the street sitting at the table. They're sure they got a place reserved for them, and then they get there, they think they're going to walk in, and they can't. Their, their reservation has been given to somebody else. Because true responsiveness fills the kingdom of God. And what I mean by responsiveness is accepting that invitation that's been put out there. Repenting. Turning from what you were doing to follow God and changing our plans. It's not that God's plan changed. It's that we change our plans to follow Him, to accept the invitation. You see, we were the ones who were out in the streets and the lanes and the highways and the hedges in this passage. That's where we were. We were out there. And we, as believers, were the ones who accepted the invitation and repented, who turned away from that old life to what God has called us to. And if you're here or you hear this and you're not yet a believer you have to be honest with yourself, there may not be another invitation. We're not guaranteed another invitation. So you have to ask yourself, how many times is God going to send out that invitation? How, long, how many times is He going to send a messenger to you and you not listen? And just say, i got other stuff to do. I'll go next week. So we're, in a lot of ways, we're the people who are out there in the streets and the lanes who got that invitation to come in. But we're also the ones, we're also the slave who's sent out with the invitation. We have that role as well. And in verse 23, he tells us to compel, he tells the slave 
Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. John Wesley describes this. He says that we, we compel people with all the violence of love and the force of God's Word. He says, because we can't force people to believe in God. Our history is just completely messed up with people who tried to force people to convert to Christianity or some other faith at the point of a spear or the point of a gun. That's not faith. That's fear. That's just people responding out of fear. Say, i got to say these things or they're going to kill me. And when we see cases of people who are told to renounce their faith or die and they choose to remain loyal to God, that should just... That should tell us that faith is not something that you can change at by being forced to do it. So we can't force people to believe, and we shouldn't try to. That's not what we're called to do. But we should be persuasive and persistent. You know, we can't guilt people into the kingdom. And we can't guilt people into discipleship. It's the Spirit of God that convicts. But the great news is there is always room in God's kingdom for those who will accept the invitation. And even better than that, many of the people who will be there will be people that we wouldn't expect. We're going to look around and go, really? They're here? Okay. Something must have happened that I didn't know about. Um, And so we see that and we just go, you know, and that that even happened with us. You know, uh, this year is 20 years since uh, we graduated high school. And a few years ago, we had a 15-year reunion. And and some people turned out about what you expect like after 15 years, and others you're like, really? That's kind of a surprise. I didn't I didn't see their life going that direction. And, and sometimes that's really encouraging. You're like, wow, you know, God must have done something in their life. Um, and so we're going to see people in the kingdom of God that, earthly wise, we would have never thought would be there. But we see in verse 24 that eventually the door will be shut. Because he says, For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste of my dinner. The door will eventually be shut. The invitation is open, but it's not forever open. You know, uh, some of y'all caught earlier that today is my birthday. If you're on Facebook, I think the earliest message I got was about 5 or 6 o'clock this morning. And I was like, what are you people doing up that early? You know, so, so no, wishing me happy birthday or something like that. Um, but, you know, as a kid, you know, and especially as a fairly socially awkward kid, um, birthday parties always freaked me out because I was like, well, who do I invite? And they're probably not going to come anyway. And um, and it just, you know, it was just like a thing, you know. Um, and so I just usually didn't make too, too big a deal over it. Um, but here's the deal. God's party is going to be awesome. God's party is going to be awesome. And the invitation is open to everyone. That's the news we should be getting out there. Hey, there's a really big party coming. You've been invited. Come on, let's go. And I think if we have that mindset, that should affect how we talk to people. We talk to those who are away from God or have never heard about Him. You know, who've never heard, so there's going to be a party. And, you know, yeah, the Bible talks about a party. And it's going to be great. 
Jesus is going to be there. All the other people throughout all of history who followed him will be there. That's pretty good news. And that's the kind of invitation that we should be getting out there. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you threw the doors open for us. That throughout history, you've sent people out to invite us, to share your good news with us. That that you love us and that you paid a price for us. And Lord, we're going to celebrate that one day when we're in your presence. We don't know exactly what all that's going to look like, but Lord, we know it's going to happen. And we're excited about it. And we look forward to it. But Lord, help us to also see that we're the ones sent out with the invitations. Help us to get as many people as we can to be at that party with us. Lord, help us to not think too highly of ourselves to try to seek honor for ourselves, but also at the same time realize that you value us and that you love us and that we have value in you. Lord, I thank you that you're a God of true compassion. You're a God of justice, but you're a God of forgiveness and compassion as well. And those things don't contradict in you. Lord, we love you. Help us to be the people that you want us to be, to be more like Jesus every day as we come to remember him at this time. And we pray these things in the name.